Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. We are starting a new series this morning, and we're talking, we entitled it, If I Should Die Before I Wake. How many said that little prayer when you were a kid? Do you remember that one? Yeah. You know, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. Isn't that a great way to send kids off to bed? You know? I should die before I wake. Good night. Have a good, you know. Um, we're talking about this whole idea of death. And we, we brought this up here on purpose because this is one of those things, this little casket over here makes people so nervous. It's just a box. But it makes people so nervous because of what it represents. What it represents is something we hope we will never have to face. It represents something we don't ever want to talk about, at least not if we don't have to. And yet I find so many people have so many questions about the life after this one, but they're so afraid to talk about it. And so we're going to be talking about it for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the reality that every one of us is going to face, because every one of us will. The mortality rate is still 100%. Every one of us is going to face the fact and the truth that life is short, life is fleeting, life is fragile. It's not permanent, doesn't last forever. And yet, with all that, I think deep down inside, we all have this unshakable sense that there's got to be something more. This life is so short, but there's just got to be something more. And over the centuries, a number of people have had all kinds of beliefs and theories and opinions about what happens when this life ends. Um, Some people believe in reincarnation which is uh, you come back, but you come back as something different. So, you know, if you're really good in this life, you come back as something really cool, like, you know, some big Arabian stallion or something. And if you were bad, you come back as a cockroach and people step on you. You know, <laughs> some people believe in, this, in an idea of purgatory, which is kind of like a holding cell that you're in temporarily. And if people who are still alive pray for you, you get out. Some people kind of think of it like this, like it's, like it's a, a balance scale. And, and here's all the good things in my life, and here's all the bad things in my life, and when I come to the end, we kind of weigh them out, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad, and, and I get into heaven. Some people claim that they have seen death. They had an out-of-body experience. They had a near-death experience and, and saw a great white light coming at them, but, but they didn't die. They came back to life. And there's actually some people who make a whole lot of money promising they can talk to your dead relatives for you. We all got this idea. Atheists, atheists, well, they just kind of believe it's all over, nothing more, kaput, that's it, kick the button, kick the bucket, pushing up daisies, worm food, you know, that's it, that's it, no more. That's all, folks. And yet, if you're an atheist, you got to ask yourself this question. Why does there seem to be this unshakable conviction that there's something more? That has carried on from culture to culture, century through century, there is still this persistent belief in something beyond. And maybe you don't believe it, but you've got you to wonder, why do so many people believe it? And if you're a believer, then this series is all important because you, what is it that, I, that you can expect? What happens when we die? And, and more importantly, how do we live our life here and now in light of that? And those are some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, everybody wants to know. And the truth is, everybody will know the moment after you die. And so through this series, I want to take a look at what happens 
What happens when I die? And the Bible has all kinds. It doesn't tell us all about it, but it does give us enough that there are some things we can know. And I'm going to kind of just lay a foundation for it all, this whole series this morning, and just talk about this whole idea. What can we know? What can we know about life after this one? Paul, the apostle, wrote a letter. Actually, he wrote a number of letters. Um, He wrote two of them that we know of to the church in Corinth. And it's his second letter, 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, chapter 5. And if you're using one of the note papers there, um, it says 15. If you're looking for 2 Corinthians 15, you will never find it. It doesn't go that high. So it's a typo, chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, this is what Paul wrote. He wrote, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, We are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may give what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or or bad. Paul said there's a couple of things we can know. There's some things we can be absolutely assured of. One of them is this, that the life to come, he says, is far more real than this present life. Now, that's an important point because we, we have this sense that if I can't experience something with my five senses, or at least one or two of my five senses, it just doesn't seem real. It can't be real. If I can't touch it, if I can't taste it, if I can't smell it, if I can't then, then it, it, it just, it's a hard time believing it's real. And we've kind of equated the idea of anything that is spiritual to be, that, that, that anything is spiritual is also ethereal. That it's wispy, it, it has no, no real solidness to it. That, that, that the heaven is just kind of, you know, little, fat little babies with wings and halos playing harps sitting on clouds. You know, that's kind of the picture that we have. And it's not really tangible. It's not anything we can touch. Not anything. It's just, just kind of out there, kind of just drifting. And that's not a new concept, by the way. That goes all the way back. It goes back centuries. The, the ancient Greeks believed this, that the body was the prison of the soul. The body was the prison of the spirit. And that the, that the, the spirit was trapped in the body. And, and because of that, it was limited. It couldn't, it couldn't be what it really needed to be. And, and when you died, the, the spirit separated from the body. And then the, the, the earthly body just kind of disappeared. And the spirit went to the spiritual realms. Now, Paul says that's not so. He says, the life to come is solid. It's real. It's more real than this life you're living right here and now. He describes it this way. He uses two different metaphors. The first is he talks about the housing. He says, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. He says, this life, this isn't reality. This is a camping trip. Maybe not a fun one, but that's what it is. Tents are not permanent residence. This is not our permanent residence. 
that God has something more for us, something solid. That, in fact, it's so solid, the comparison would be a tent to a mansion. That's how much different, how much more solid, how much more real it is. Yes, the body does separate from the spirit, but it, the spirit doesn't just go off and live in some spirit world. He says it becomes clothed with a brand new body, a perfected body, which for some of us is really, really good news. You know, because I will get my hair back. I'm, I'm hoping for that. I will be able to hear once again, you know, because this body is starting to fall apart on me. He says, the next life will be so more real. And it's not just a separating from the body and that's it. It's a re- reuniting with a more permanent, perfect body. New bodies. The second metaphor he is, is that it's, it's a difference between being naked and having clothes. He says, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Swallowed up by life. That, that this existence is not real. It's not meant to last. We are meant for something more. And the difference is so, so stark that it's the difference between camping out in a tent and living in a mansion. It's the difference between running around naked and having a full set of clothing. It says that's how much more real it is. I think the problem is we don't think of it as a solid reality. And because we don't think of it as a solid reality, we all, you know, we all kind of want to go there. We're just not sure if it's, we're going to like it. You know, just show of hands this morning. How many would say, I want to go to heaven? Pretty much 100%. How many would say, I want to go to heaven today? Eh, not so sure. Not so sure. Because I'll take a rain check on that one because I kind of like what things are like, and I'm not sure I want that. Oh, yeah, we do theoretically because the other, the other alternative doesn't sound like much fun. But, but he says, think about it as a reality. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven says this, Satan doesn't need to convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He only needs to convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. Jesus intended us to envision heaven and hell as real places where there are real people who came from earth. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying the next life is so real and so desirable that I would rather live there than here. He says we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He goes on and says God made us for that very purpose. That we were not created for just a life and existence on this earth. We were created for an existence with Him that is far more real and far more, far more solid. Now, we don't know a lot about it, but one of the things we do know is that it's real, that it's solid, that it's tangible. We also know, as Paul wrote here, that we can have a certainty about it. We can have a certainty about our eternal destiny. I talked earlier about this idea. Some people have this thought of, it's kind of a balanced scale. And here's all the good things in my life, and here's all the bad things in my life, and, and hopefully when I come to the end, the good outweighs the bad, and then I get in. The trouble is with that whole thing is, you can never know for sure. How do you know if the bad you did really wasn't as bad as you thought it was, or the things you thought were not nearly as bad were far worse than you've ever given credit for? And how do you know if you've done enough good things to make up for it? And the truth of the matter is, it's not the amount of sin or the quality or quantity of sin. It's the mere fact of sin that separates us from God. 
according to Scripture, we can be absolutely positive that there is a place for us. Paul wrote it this way. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We are confident it is a real place and we are confident it is our destination. In fact, it's so emphatic. He says it twice. We are always confident. It's a reality and we know that it is our eternal destiny because it doesn't depend on our work. And that's the difference. He says we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. All of my efforts, all of my trying, all of my good works can't get me in. He says the only reason we know it can be a certainty is because it's not depending on us. If it depended on me, if the weight of that was on my own shoulders, I would have no confidence whatsoever. But knowing it's not on me, that's my source of confidence. It's not built by human hands. It's not by our efforts. It's what God has done for us. Jesus said to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. He's doing the preparing. He's the one that made the way. If it rested on my shoulders, I would have no confidence. Look at the next verse, Titus 3, 5. It is not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He says it's not what we have done. It's what he has done for us. Jesus did for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. And he didn't wait for us to fix ourselves up. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. And if you don't believe that, just look around you. Exhibit A. None of us here have it all together. None of us. And if God waited for us to get it together, it would never happen. So what he did was, he did it for us. He did for us what we couldn't do. See, what the Bible teaches is, The mere fact of sin in our life separates us from God. That is one of the things that is clear throughout Scripture. Sin separates. And it's not an amount or a quality. It is a fact. That sin separates us from God. Because God is so holy, He has no part with sin whatsoever. And so that sin in my life is a thing that separates me, that keeps me from having a relationship with God. And ultimately, says, the ultimate consequence of our sin is death. And not just a physical death, but even an eternal death. And so what he did for us was Jesus Christ, God become man, lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. And he lived a life totally sinless, had no sin of his own. But he was arrested, he was put on a cross, he was beaten to death in payment for my sin and for yours. And he was buried, Scripture says, and rose back to life, proving he has the power over death, sin, and hell. He's saying, I have done it all for you, and here is the proof. There is a new life for you. It isn't based on your good works. It isn't based on your best efforts. It isn't based on trying to outbalance the bad. It is based on what I have done for you. And you can have forgiveness, and you can have life starting right here, right now. And you can be confident in it because it's not your doing. It's what Christ has done for you. He goes on, he says, God made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He's saying the Spirit of God within you, that's like the earnest money. 
Okay, that's the down payment. You've already been given that. It has already started. And he's already paid it in full. But what you have right now is the spirit of... Because when you ask Christ for his forgiveness, when you receive him into your life, when you put your life in his hands, it says the spirit of Christ himself indwells you. And he begins to change you from the inside out. He gives you a new life. You say, yeah, but it looks an awful lot like the old one. Yes, it does. But the change is happening from the inside out. And it's the work of God. And he says the very fact that Christ has forgiven you and put his spirit within you, is the down payment. You know you can be certain because it's what he has done for you. There's one more thing Paul talks about here that we can be absolutely certain of. And this one's maybe not quite so much fun to talk about. The third thing we know in this passage is everyone, everyone will be called to give an account. Everyone. Everyone. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that, to what? To face judgment. Every one of us will face judgment. Now, the Bible indicates there are two judgments. There is one that is called the great white throne judgment. It's what's talked about in the writings of John in Revelation chapter 20. John got a vision, the apostle John got a vision of things to come and the end of this age. And he saw what was going to happen. And he wrote about it. And that's what the book of Revelation, is a good part of it, is all about. But you get to the very end, and he says, this is what he saw. At the very end of it all, I saw a great white throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. So what we know is, there will be a judgment. There will be a, what is called the great white throne judgment. And books will be opened. Not very clear what those books are. More than likely, it's the book of each of our lives. But he says there's one book, there's one book that really matters. He goes on and he says in verse 15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. He says, there is one book you want to make sure your name is in. There is one book. And when it comes to the great white throne judgment, there is only one thing that matters. And the question is this, what did you do with the grace of God that was offered you through Jesus? That's the only question that's going to be settled right then and there. That is the question. What did you do with what Christ did for you? And if you have, if you've put your trust in him, if you received the forgiveness that he did, if you if you put your trust in the death that he experienced on your behalf, he says your name goes in that book of life. It's not something you earn. It's not like a who's who where you got to be really famous and rich. It's did you put your trust in Jesus? And that is the one book that you do want to make sure is open and has your name on it. Because he says anyone whose name was not written in that book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Based on that book, you'll experience one of two things. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about heaven. And the week after that, we're going to talk about hell. What does the Bible say about those things? So I'm not going to go into great depth, but I'll just tell you, heaven good, hell bad. Okay, that's enough for now. And he said, the determining factor, the determining factor is, is your name written in the book? Because if it isn't, there is an eternal separation of torment and sorrow and anguish. Now he says, there's a second judgment. It's referred to, as Paul did in the Corinthian letter, as the judgment seat of Christ. Now this is not, this is, this is, a, this is a judgment for believers, 
Okay? This, is, this is not determine your eternal destiny. That's already settled by the book of life. Okay? That's the great white throne judgment. But this judgment, this judgment is for believers, those who have put their faith in Christ and have entered into that kingdom. They've already got their name in. That, that issue is settled. But there is something more to be done. And it's about reward and recognition. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now again, this is not eternal destiny judgment, but it is something important. The word um, judgment seat, uh, the Greek word is bema, B-E-M-A. Practice that with me, bema. Yeah, now you know Greek, okay? You can impress your friends. It's a very technical term, and it has rich meaning in it. Part of it has to do with, yes, literally it means to step up, to step up onto a podium. And so the bema is the place where you step up. And sometimes it was in, in in a Roman court or Greek court, it was stepping up before judgment. But it was the same word that was used for the Olympics when at the end of the, of the games, at the end of the com- competition, the, the winner would step up on the bema and he would receive a crown of woven olive leaves. And the crown signified you were victorious. You did your best and this is your reward. You came through and you made it. And the winner got this crown of olive leaves around them. And it was to signify you did good. You made it. You were victorious. And I want you to kind of have that picture in your mind. Because when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, I think that's what he's talking about. Because Jesus talked about that too in a parable of the talents where the, the servants who had gone and reproduced and, and brought back more using and investing what God had given, the master had given them. And he comes back and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Okay? That's the idea here. And I kind of want you to just kind of picture yourself. Because your life here comes to an end. And you stand before Christ. And he puts you up on that bema, on that podium. And you look into his eyes, and for the very first time, you really, really, really get it. You really begin to understand what this life down here was all about. And it wasn't about all the stuff you thought it was. And he says, we will be given crowns. Now, are they actual crowns? Are they gold crowns? Are they olive That we don't know. What we do know is there is reward and there is recognition for the things done in this earth. What is he talking about? Well, if you go through the New Testament, there's at least five crowns that are mentioned. Okay? There might be more. I don't know. But these are the five I know of that we can find in Scripture. And let me go through them. We don't have time to go into them uh, in any depth this morning. But let me just kind of hit on them so you can get an idea of what they are. There is, first of all, what is called the imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes exercises self-control. He's talking about that Olympics, okay? The athlete compete, practices, he puts himself through training, does self-control, okay? He does it, however, they do it to receive a perishable crown, that old olive leaf thing. But we do it for an imperishable crown. Now, this, this crown is for those 
who gave themselves to the disciplines of the Christian faith. They gave themselves to study of, of the word and to reading of scripture. They gave themselves to times of prayer and, and, and deepening and pressing into that relationship with God. They are those who are, who are involved in Christian community, maybe, maybe a community group like we have here, because they know the importance of being in community. They give themselves to the disciplines and the habits of the Christian faith, not to earn the reward, but to get to know Jesus better. And, and that's the whole goal, is, to, is to, to press in as tight as you can into his embrace. And you know who you are, those of you who live that way. You give yourself to that, not to get brownie points, but because you want to know him more. And he says there's a reward for that. It's an imperishable crown. There's also what is called the crown of righteousness. Paul writes about it to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the reward for those who realize, who got it down here, this life is not all there is. And they were so convinced of it and so aware of it that they reallocated all of their resources to invest in eternity. And instead of spending their time building their little treasures around here on earth and piling up and amassing all kinds of stuff, they chose to live differently and to use their resources to give of their time, to give of their talents and their abilities, to give of their treasures and their giftings and their all of those things for the sake of God's kingdom. They didn't do it for the reward. They did it because they understood this world is not my home. I am longing for something more. And it's called the crown of righteousness. There is one, it's called the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 What is our hope, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church? What is our joy? When our Lord Jesus returns, what is the crown we will delight in, we will rejoice in? Isn't it you? This is the crown for those who are not content to sit in a holy huddle. Who is not all about, it's just me reading my Christian books and going to my Christian Bible studies and my Christian... But they have a heart for those who are not yet in the kingdom. And they, they, they invest their lives in those people and they invite them and they bring them along and they share their faith and they do whatever they can to bring people into the kingdom of God. Because this is far too important to just spend it on myself. And they invest their lives into bringing other people into that kingdom. It's called the crown of rejoicing. Paul said, you're it for me. You who come to faith, you put your trust in Jesus Christ because of my ministry. You're my crown. And then there's what's called the crown of glory. Paul writes about it to Peter. Or excuse me, Peter writes about it. Peter's the author. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. This is the crown for those who shepherd, who care, who pastor. It is for those who are involved in our children's ministry and invest in kids' lives and shepherd them towards Jesus, who, who work in our student ministries and come alongside middle schoolers or high schoolers and, and mentor them and bring them along and teach them and grow them and care for them and shepherd them through. It is our community group leaders, people like that, who give their time to develop a, a community of believers and to share together and to take leadership over that and to guide that group. 
That's that crown. It's called the crown of glory. And then there's what is called the crown of life. And I think this is a particularly special one. James writes about it. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is for those who for whatever reason experience great hardships in this world. And it doesn't make sense. And life is difficult and I don't know why. I don't know why for some people it seems to be more difficult than others. But there is a crown for that. People who endure hardship. People who suffer for the faith. The martyrs who gave up their lives rather than than, than renouncing their faith in Jesus Christ. That is that crown. It is called the crown of life because you didn't get a fair shake in this life, but you got a great one ahead. These are the crowns. These are the rewards. And, and, And you might stand on that podium on that day and say, but I didn't do it for the reward. I didn't do it for the crown. And Jesus will just simply say, I know. I know you did it for me. Because when you gave a cup of cold water, or you visited me when I was in prison. Or you, I was naked and you clothed me. And you say, but Lord, whoa, Lord, when did I do that? He'll say, don't you remember what I told you? When you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And I know that. And he places that crown on your head. And he holds you in his arms. And he says, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I want to be on that throne. I want to be on that podium. And there are people here this morning that that you're involved in those things. You are giving your life to those things. You know what it is like and you live your lives in that way. And, and it, it is wonderful. Because, and, I know, and you don't do it because of the reward to come. You do it because of your love for Jesus here and now. But he says there will be a reward. Now he also talks about another group of people. There are some that your life in Christ is an embarrassment. You do nothing. You got your t- entry ticket into heaven, and that's it. You're sitting on your ticket. And, and i got to tell you about this, because the Scripture is very clear about this one, too. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about it. He says, there will come that day when all that you have amassed and all that you have put your time and your energy and effort into and everything that makes up the sum total of your life is all going to be put together right in front of you, and it's going to be put on fire. And all that stuff you thought was so important and all that stuff that I thought I had to have will be burned up because it's not eternal stuff. And he says on that day, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. He said, there are some of you, you got your entry ticket, and yeah, you're in, and it's not anything you've done, that's for sure, but you haven't done anything since. Your life has still been self-directed, self-desired, self-motivated, just plain selfish. And he says, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. 
There's a reward for you. There is more for you. And I know, I believe, the worst place in heaven is better than the best place in hell. I believe that. But I don't want the worst place in heaven. And I don't think you do either. He says, don't be that person. Yeah, you're in. But you just made it as the door was closing. Don't be that person. I have so much more for you in this life and in the next. Do not miss it. Do not miss it. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 